Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there are some outlying parts of London where you name them and your listener will give you that rabbit-trapped-in-the-headlights look. They sort of know what you're talking about. They think they've heard the name of that place before, couldn't find it on a map. Not so with Soho. Soho is a place that conjures up meaning in everybody's mind, but Soho is as subject to evolution as anywhere else in the city. Crossrails punched a hole right in its middle, and the built environment is changing big time. So with all that going on, how can it be ensured that the creative flame continues to burn? We're going to find out in just a moment, but not before. I wish you, if you're celebrating it, a happy Christmas. I hope everything's gearing up for a good one. And special thanks to all of our contributors who've made the show what it is uh, this year. And to you for having been with us. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. from a red-lit room in Soho, which I think probably sets the wrong tone straight away, in fact. I'm at the top floor of the Escargot restaurant and bar. It's probably one of the coolest places in town. It's bedecked from ground floor to top with cool paraphernalia and paintings, and the coolest item of them all is uh, here in front of me, Tom Harvey, Soho Create, the chief exec. Hi. Hi, what a fantastic description of me. <laughs> Never well, mind the Scargo. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we'd start on a positive. You're in silhouettes this afternoon. I am. We are in this beautiful, tiny, tiny red room at the Scargo, which actually is my favourite room in the whole of Soho. It's just all kind of plush, velvet, dark red. And the great thing is the door you can lock from the inside. So all sorts of wonderful things go on here late at night. Uh, yes, we're in Soho, of course, which has a reputation for a number of different things, actually, kind of overlapping communities. It's, uh, one of the major things, of course, is that it's a creative hub. It's a, it's a film hub. What is Soho Create? Soho Create is a festival 
and it's a group of us creative people in the public sector and the private sector getting together to try and build the biggest creative festival for London. So I think a lot of us feel in Soho that, you know, if Austin can have South by Southwest, then surely London, as the most creative city in the world, can have its own huge creative festival. So we're now a year-round events uh, and a big festival in June. So we're all trying to make June the month of the year that you come from all over the world to uh, London and to Soho to talk about all things creative. London already hosts to an enormous number of film festivals, so I presume you're throwing your net more widely. Yeah, absolutely. We're specifically not a festival about output, so we're not a film festival or a book festival or a play festival. We're about the process, so we're much more interested in the creative process itself, uh, the journey people have been on, why they do what they do, that sort of stuff. And I think when you put creative people together... You know, a building is very different to a play, but a playwright can have a fantastic creative conversation with an architect about the process. And that's the stuff we love, the kind of nitty gritty of why people do what they do. And I think the other thing where we're sort of moving away from slightly is this, the the, the sort of notion that creative careers... Uh, reach their pinnacle with awards and you know awards are wonderful and we love those moments when we get given something for doing what we do but actually for most people there's a sort of 20 30 year journey to get there and actually it's the journey that that interests us not the moment of holding the award above your head so what's the overall purpose then in, in bringing those processes out into the open I think it's shocking to have an overall purpose. That sounds unbelievably boring. There's not one purpose at all. There's a whole, a whole mix of motives and purposes. And, and design. So there's a, there's a commercial purpose uh, around having a commercial festival for London in this extraordinary creative cluster. We also, the flip side of that is we do a lot of stuff with young people and creativity for young people is vital. And there's a whole personal journey in there for me around that sort of permission to be creative. Yeah, my dad was a sculptor, um, most of my family were artists, and I sat underneath that huge weight of other people being brilliant at being creative. So whilst I kind of understood it, you know, for myself, that moment when you're allowed to kind of come out from all that and be creative yourself is really important. And, you know, I can see you, you visit a lot of schools, it's hard enough to get art into the curriculum, never mind help young people understand what creativity is. And without creativity, we don't just not have any writers or poets or painters or architects or designers or code you know we don't have any mathematicians and we don't have any physicists none of that creativity is absolutely essential to who we are and what we do i can see this is nurturing on a a morale boost level you've got a bunch of people presumably who are going to be conversing and swapping stories and being examples for people perhaps further back and coming up what about in terms of practical assistance for creative folk We are tonight, in fact, launching Soho Create Connect. Now, that's a a business networking club, if you like, and that's about how do we in the Soho cluster, when I talk about the Soho cluster, I mean the group of creative companies in this bit of London, not necessarily just the square mile. The sort of cluster extends across into Mayfair, up into Fitzrovia, you know, across a bit into Covent Garden, down to Leicester Square. Um, that's an absolutely extraordinary cluster of creative companies but in order to carry on growing to carry on being profitable we've got to get much more cooperative in the way we all work together so we've started Soho Create Connect to start connecting businesses better with each other and the people that creative people that work for them better with each other 
And that seems kind of obvious on some level. So I'm thinking, for example, if there's a big production house or something that's, that's got lots of folk and they've got lots of requirements for subcontracts for this and that, I can see how that might work. What about, and I'm thinking particularly for example my line writers or people who work more independently uh, I don't know illustrators or something once they've got their their core connections that keep their career afloat what assistance would this sort of environment be how do you see that working I think people can come into it and meet a lot of different creatives that's the point of it really that I don't think anymore it's enough to have your group of people or your clients and, and just do that so I think if you're a big company, it's very easy now to keep across all the stuff that's happening in your sector. So if you're an architect, you know, you have to read, you know, there's two or three journals you can read and, you know, it's not that difficult to keep up to speed with what's happening in your sector. But when it comes to creativity and inspiration and ideas, you actually now need to be across the special effects sector. What's the editors doing? What writers are doing? And that, for me, is far more interesting. So for me, I get as much inspiration you know, by talking to someone about car design as I do to talking to a theatre director about the latest play they've done. And I love that kind of mix. And I think if you're creative, the notion that anything is static is false. I think that you're constantly looking for inspiration, constantly using other people and the energy of other people and their ideas to, to, to sort of feed your own. And that's what it's about, is trying to get a lot of different creative people in a room talking about what they do and why they do it with each other. Now, this is in part an opportunity to unpack a little bit about you and your background and what you're bringing to this, uh, and also a good excuse to name-check Matteo Pericoli, who was on the show or three four years ago. He is uh, an architect and artist. He's done great panoramas of the banks of the Thames. But what interested me most and was really affirming in the conversation that we had from my point of view were exactly those similarities and the, the additional thoughts that he was bringing to my creative process through talking about architecture as a comparator with say literature and i wonder what sort of cross-disciplinary conversations you've had in your past that's convinced you that this is worthy of pursuit i i could all, there's a very interesting one i had with jude kelly who who runs the south bank and it was actually up in uh in newcastle and gateshead and i was running kind of in creative industry investment funds up there and I was starting to feel like I was kind of becoming a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, a money, sort of suited money man and was kind of losing track of what it was all about. And I had this fantastic conversation. I'm walking around, you know, across the, the fantastic Wilkinson Air Bridge where you've got, you know, the, the other side of the bridge, you've got the Baltic um, Art Gallery and then you've got Norman Foster's Sage Gateshead. So architecturally... You've got this extraordinary landscape on the Gateshead side. And, and Jude was really talking about how producers are artists. And when we're, you know, what we're doing is we're looking at these huge landscapes that sometimes are physical in the sense they're a riverbank you're developing stuff for, um, or, or your career and who you work with and why you work with them and what your kind of vision is of the place you're going to. And she, she defined the whole thing for me as an artistic endeavour, which I loved. And that, for me changed the way I thought about my career so how had you got yourself into a suit rut um gosh well I was uh running a company fantastic company called XPT uh which was an interactive entertainment company back in the day when we were making stuff for kind of 56k dial-up modems and creatively it was a wonderful company we won a BAFTA and we sold some of it to FreeServe at the time what, what were you putting together then what sort of uh, flavour of thing? Uh, it was online drama. 
So it was web-based, uh, interactive narratives, non-linear narratives. Um, and that sort of ran beautifully into the buffers on the kind of dot-com crash. And I was looking around at what to do next, having had uh, that moment when you realise that your sort of mad, eclectic interests have just given you an appalling CV across far too many different things. So film, telly, interactive, all sorts of things. And then a job came up in the northeast, uh, investing in creative industries. So it included all of the things I'd done. And you get that magic moment when you look like a complete genius because your whole CV comes together wonderfully in this magic moment. Um, and that's, that's what took me to the northeast. And I think as, as well, at that point, I wanted, I wanted to, with the family to get out of London. I think, you know, there was a... Back then, there was a real sense of things kind of crashing down around our ears. Um, the dot-com crash, you know, was, was pretty catastrophic for a lot of people. And I think particularly as it came after this kind of wonderful sort of hedonistic period when there seemed to be so many possibilities as, as sort of money was coming in for new ideas creatively and new technology and new ways of doing things, and then suddenly to have that sense that we'd lost it all, you know, the whole thing had kind of gone. Of course it hadn't, it just felt like that way at the time. Um, so that, that kind of got me out of London into a very, very different place, and I had ten extraordinary years in the northeast of England with some incredible people doing some wonderful stuff. I feel like we stopped mid-sentence, I'm dying to know what you were doing. Um, well, I, did, I went up there to run what was then called a screen agency, and it was really spending money from the RDAs, with the regional de- development agencies, and the UK Film Council. Um, both, sadly, <laughs> they had their heads chopped off by uh, the government. Um, I'm not sure that was necessarily the wisest decision they've ever made, because um, I think both those organisations did a lot of really good things. So it was sort of giving out public money, and the, the journey there was a how can you use the small amounts of public money you've got to attract bigger amounts of public money and how can you then use larger amounts of public money to uh, bring in private money and the journey for me there was increasingly sort of losing uh, faith that public money necessarily is able to do the things we wanted to do with it and increasingly using the private money to to do those things so we ended up hold hold on do you mean from um do you mean from the point of view of the artist in terms of realizing whatever it is they they want to create or do you mean from the uh, those dreaded outcomes that are always uh, riders on any public money I i i think it's probably neither in that if you're entrepreneurial and you're trying to create change and growth in a system artists just carrying on doing what they've always done isn't necessarily that helpful for anyone and I think that's that's quite controversial uh, and I'm not so sure if it's 100% true but that was what I felt at the time that my job wasn't to support people just to carry on doing what they were doing because my job was to kind of change an environment so I had to find ways of helping people do more than what they were doing by introducing them to more people by getting different sorts of money involved in the sectors by mixing it up a bit and we ended up uh, the, the end of that journey was going all the way into the private sector, really, and creating private sector investment funds for creative industries, where we employed fund managers to make the investments for us. I don't think there is one model. 
So if you're, you know, and a lot of the public, of the diverse public funding has, has, has disappeared. So, I, you know, I think if you look at, at funding a theatre, I think it's absolutely right that we have public money that, that, that helps keep those theatres going, but challenges them to carry on doing new and different work. I think those environments are fine. Um, but I think some of the environments that existed outside London, and bear in mind this is kind of 15 years ago, there were people funded just to sort of carry on doing the same. And there's, there's a sense you have with that that there are buffers at the end of the line, that you can't just carry on doing what you've always done. Um, I think it's more complex than that, looking back on it. I think some people did what they did brilliantly and should have, we should have carried on funding them to do it, and some people we shouldn't. So I think I would finesse that differently now. I wonder if you've got a particular uh, example that comes to mind to, to illustrate what you're talking about here and, and maybe a changed approach to one's art or to one's creativity. Um, I, 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 I suppose the best example for me is there's a, uh, an incredible film collective in the northeast called Amber. And they did, you know, for me, some of the most extraordinary, uh, beautiful, real narrative film work I've, I've ever seen I mean I think it's absolutely world class um, the, the challenge they had you know with the sort of creatives as they, as they get older they have less energy they become more and more entrenched in a sort of way of doing things um, and that was, a, that was a real challenge for us as to how you know does one carry on funding them or does one try and encourage them to change I think at the time there wasn't enough money to go round, and we didn't fund them in the way they wanted or expected, that might have been a mistake. I kind of think when you look back on it, probably just, you know, keeping the money flowing to people that were doing extraordinary stuff in that instance would have been right. I think the difficulty with public policy is in the word policy, that you have to have a policy around what you fund and what you don't fund. And that stops you going, I love what you're doing, it's just completely fantastic, and we're going to give you this money, but you are doing something that looks very similar, but I just don't like it as much, so we're not going to. And you can't do that as a public funder. You've got to have a policy around why you're turning things down and why you're giving some, some people money. Uh, and I, I think that, that got very complicated, uh, and we unpicked some things that we shouldn't have unpicked. Hmm. It seems that this requirement, and maybe it's always been like this, of the artist to also be uh, entrepreneurial. It seems more pressing now than it's ever been. And it, uh, one also gets the impression that some of the life rafts that might have been available to one, some of, some of the uh, safe harbours that might have been available to one, have fallen away. You hear a lot of people talk about the collapse of the music industry, publishing, and people are obliged to strike out on their own. And I guess that replicates what's going on in other parts of life as well. With your experience of meeting people at various stages of a creative career, do you get the impression that the majority of people are are in fact equipped to take on the challenge of entrepreneurialism? I think that's a really interesting question because I don't think I don't think they should be forced to do that. Um, I think creative entrepreneurs are fantastically valuable people. You know, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I kind of cast myself as one slightly. Um, I, you know, I'm not nearly as as entrepreneurial and sales orientated as I should be and you know, I, I wish I had you know far more entrepreneurial skills but I, I, 
I think there's a danger that we, we equate creativity too much with making a living. And for somewhere like Soho, you know, it's, it's a business district. It's a fantastic industrial cluster. You know, it turns over £7.5 billion pounds, uh, and employs 46,000 people. It's a phenomenally commercial and money-making cluster. The sort of collapse of the music industry doesn't mean people are going to stop making music. I think there's a career structure that's missing there, and I think all of us in creative industries need to think very hard about career structures again and apprenticeships and all the old model uh, of, of how, we, how we did things. And I, and I think for a long time there was a sort of further education role there for creativity that people went through because it was a good way to kind of get a bit of a grant and carry on playing the guitar kind of thing. I don't think that exists anymore in that way and I think it's going to get dismantled far more so I think we've got to as the creative industries we've got to think very very hard about what those career structures are and how we can help people earn a bit of money you know being creative but equally just because we can write doesn't mean to say someone should pay us to write I think that's always been the case and I think it's 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 increasingly so now and I'm not sure being more entrepreneurial about how you sell what you're writing is necessary there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sorry, the answer. The Westminster City Council did some, some independent research on the value of the creative sector for Westminster in 2007, I think it was, initially, and then there was some more in 2011, and that put the turnover of creative companies in Westminster at 14 billion quid, and they employed 90,000 people. And that was sort of around the time... No, out of that came the research we did around Soho because we started looking at what that might be for Soho because our, our kind of hunch was that a huge amount of that turnover and employment sat in this area of town and actually when they did that research there's about £7.5 billion pound of turnover and 46,000 creative workers in this cluster which is unbelievable, it makes it uh, and we like to talk, call it a square mile it isn't of course, but we like to talk about it as the most creative square mile in the world which it is, because there is not that density 
of commercial creative people anywhere in the world. Let's throw open the doors of Soho then, as, as somebody who frequents the area and, and knows it well. There's 46,000 creatives around here. Where are they or what are they doing? What does it look like behind the doors and windows of Soho? Well, if you, you, know, if you just take this building, there are creative people creating fantastic food here. You know, and if you wander further down the street, you'll find post-production companies, you'll find designers, architects... There's theatres, you know, there's 40 theatres within about a sort of mile of where we're sitting. So all of those creative industries have got, you know, employ thousands of people beavering away, doing the doing. It's slightly complicated with industrial coding uh, as to how one counts all of those. So, you know, the accountant who works for Cameron Macintosh, when one counts those that person is no different to a theatre director. You know, they're, they're part of, because they work for a creative company, accounts to someone who is creative. It still seems remarkable, doesn't it? If you take a walk down uh, any street in Soho, the lay eye would detect lots of bars and shops, a good portion of bookshops, a few places servicing other needs, and uh, you wonder where you could possibly pack 46,000 people in what's left. Yeah, well, I think that the interest, you know, you've only got to go back probably 15 years, and there were shop windows where companies advertised what they did. So I don't know if you remember Stanley's, you know, which used to have director's chairs. And there was the companies that sold film and they had film cans and there were clapperboards and all that sort of thing. Companies aren't like that anymore. A, they don't advertise in that way. So they don't need shop fronts anymore because they're no longer really shops and they sell in a different way. So, you know, if you walk past frame store, you see a window. It's kind of you're aware it's a vaguely creative place, but you wouldn't know that behind those doors they made gravity you know it's the same for double negative you don't kind of look at it and go and i think that's 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 the thing that's very difficult in that films like i'm just take interstellar that double negative did and 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 gravity now 20 years ago you would have needed probably the 007 stage at pinewood to make those films easily now you can do it in a room that's not massively bigger than the one we're in. You know, and that's the extraordinary thing, that when people talk about creative industries sort of being digitised, they've been shrunk as well. Um, so there's a huge amount of stuff churning away behind closed doors that we never see. And one of the things we tried to do with Solo Create was do an open house. So companies open their doors, you can go into the companies see what they do and, and how they do it. And that was really popular last year, so we're going to try and make that twice the size this year. And I hope in a few years' time, you know, we'll hit 2020, and people won't need to ask that question because they can come here, wander in and out of all the creative companies, and then know where they are. And some, you know, some of the most creative places I just tucked away, you know, Dean Street Studios. You know, it's a little door. You go down, and there's this beautiful recording studio. It turns out extraordinary stuff. Well, we're going to take a break very quickly and you're going to hear, listener, a word from our sponsor and the, the creative process here goes, uh, we create this podcast for you each week and it hinges on uh, the support of people checking out The Week magazine. They're our sponsor at the moment. So please do, if you've enjoyed the podcast, give The Week a try. It's a fantastic magazine. It'll keep you up to date. And here are a word or three about it. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news. 
with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfham. With me is Tom Harvey. He is the chief executive of Soho Create. And the thing that struck me as I got off the tube at Tottenham Court Road, which is a, a place I don't use that often. I don't come to this part of town as often as I should. Of course, Tottenham Court Road has undergone enormous change over the last few years the station itself and the roads around it being uh, re-landscaped and you can see half demolished buildings new buildings going up it seems obvious that change is knocking on the door of the area i think it's not just soho i think the whole of london is going through absolutely extraordinary change and i think for people of a certain age myself included that changes suddenly so much faster than it it seems to have been happening in the past. London has become a really, really successful global city. So there's people pouring into it from all over the place. Uh, you know, you just look at Canary Wharf as an example. You know, how many years ago would you need to go back when that was just sort of, you know, I can't remember what it was. It was just sort of warehouses and deserted streets. And suddenly it's all kind of chrome and glass and property prices are increasing faster there than anywhere else and at long last it feels like there are human beings there as well it doesn't just feel like a wasteland well i think soho feels very much like it's, it's human I, I i think canary wharf feels slightly strange to me i always feel like i'm in a film set and i think king's cross at the moment hasn't really you know i think i feel like i'm in a computer game there or in, a, in the kind of architect's drawing um soho is very very different to those places because soho is made up of the sorts of houses that exist in the streets that are here already you can't change that you know you can't you can't knock through six ground floors into you know the front window for hugo boss that will never happen in soho it will always be these sort of small and eclectic uh, little places and then you know large floor plate buildings parachuted into it where there's space but I'm pleased to say that even with those large buildings, it's creative companies that are moving into them. Well, there's presumably got to be the same danger faced here as has been faced in Spitalfields and around the edges of the city where some of those gorgeous old buildings, uh, terraced houses, have been threatened with demolition and enormous towers that don't really seem to fit in alongside their uh, older neighbours have been proposed. I wonder if there isn't that same concern in these old Soho buildings. It's a really important subject for everyone to be very, very aware of. I don't think it's as simple as, oh, you know, could we knock down three of those houses and put in a skyscraper? I don't think that would happen now. I think there was a danger of that 20 years ago and that was fought off very bravely and, and, you know... You know, Westminster City Council are very, very astute about what is and isn't allowed. The challenges are more complex than that. So with the growing population, the government has told local authorities they've got to provide a certain amount of new housing. So for that's fine if you're, you know, up in Northumberland and, you know, there's some brownfield sites you can build on. That's not that difficult. In central London, it's a huge problem. So what's happened in Soho, there's been a swathe of conversions of small offices to residential. But as soon as everyone realised what was going on, ourselves included working with Westminster, 
that's been slowed now and, I, and the, the danger there was that you were losing a lot of small offices um, which are obviously house small creative companies they get turned into high-end residential that's only available to very high net worth because they're the only ones that can afford to buy it they buy it as a portfolio investment and never live in it I, th- I think everyone's aware of what was happening now in central London. Th- that sort of conversion's being slowed down. The other huge problem is there is just a limit to how many offices there are. You know, London is running out, central London is running out of office space, as is Birmingham. Uh, in two years' time, according to the States Gazette, London and Birmingham will have run out of offices. Other big cities are four years away from that. I think that's partly due to, in the recession, when there was much less building took place, and we're now you know, we're now sort of out of sync. And I think for government, that's a a kind of nettle they really have to grasp. You can't have a hugely successful city like London that's attracting businesses in in from all over the world and nowhere to put them. Well, I'm astonished. I thought we had a glut of office space and if they're not building offices and they're not building affordable homes at anything like the rate that they need to, does that mean that the, the focus of all building work is just these luxury pads? I don't, I don't know what's going on. I think it's really interesting. Um, and as I say, I was, I was, I was, you know, my philosophy of trying to read things you'd never read, it was the Estates Gazette, which is the sort of property developer's mag I was looking at. And there's a lot of stuff in there, and the property area's been talking about this for a very long time, that, that it's all very well saying we've got to house a lot more people, but at the same time there's a lot more businesses that want to set up here. And you can, you know, it's the King's Cross development is a, is a great example of that, that suddenly, you know, there's all sorts of buildings going up there and they're, they're all going to be occupied. You know, they're all kind of sold up, you know, off plan, I think. It's, it seems to be a massive challenge that isn't really being talked about as much as it should. And I think Soho is absolutely facing that challenge right now. And it's a challenge the rest of London is going to be facing very, very quickly. But for creative people, it's... It's even more difficult, I think, because in in other cities around the country, you can kind of move your creative industries to the fringes of the city and they still work because it's not that far away. You can go and be in an old pottery or an old steelworks or something and, you know, you can build a bit of a cluster there and that works pretty well. You, you can't do that in London. You know, it's just far, far too big. You know, we'd all end up in sort of South Croydon or north of Barnet. And that shouldn't happen to anyone, should it? <laughs> I would never be rude about those gorgeous parts of London. But what you've got in Soho is a cluster. Now, the nature of a cluster is that 10 yards from where we're sitting, we can find creative people to talk to. They'll all be doing all sorts of extraordinary, exciting things. All of the ideas we're all having get hothoused really, really quickly because everyone around here is very good. You can't really have a bad idea because you don't last. So you get this fantastic cauldron of great ideas and great people all doing fantastically interesting things. And that's what a cluster is. As soon as you start to push people out, you know, the the distance between them gets wider and wider. Um, And then you cease to have all the benefits of a cluster. So there's an industrial policy there government has to engage with around clusters and where they are in London and what you're going to do about it I think it's very interesting for Westminster and I'm not fully across George Osborne's um, ideas around how much the business rate local authorities are going to be able to hold on to and what they're going to be able to do with it but it sounds like a very good idea to me to give local authorities a bit more of a hand in what clusters they're supporting and where they think the focus for their area needs to be 
Okay, so this this ties very directly back into where we came in, really talking about getting people talking to each other. And it sounds as though one of the, the main challenges you're up to, and more so as time goes on, is just this natural expansion of London and getting somebody who's down south to talk to somebody up north. Presumably there comes a certain point when somebody's so far out of the centre of town that it, it's just as easy to talk to someone online in another place entirely for their creative input. I think, I think connectivity is a bit of a myth. That sort of proximity is far, far more important than connectivity. When I was in the northeast, I'd spend one or two days in London. Now I can phone those people, I can Skype with them. You've just got to be here because it isn't it isn't in the direct sort of face to face moments. It's often in the peripheral conversations that stuff happens. And a phone call, you don't get that. A phone call is I am talking to a person at the end of a phone about a specific thing. That's not where inspiration, creativity, you know, the sort relationships. of relationships. Yeah, that's not where that stuff happens. So you, you have to be here. And Soho has that in spades. You know, we're all falling over each other with that kind of texture and that kind of banging into things. Um, so it's not about fast connectivity. I think, I think for me, fast connectivity is a bit like the health service. You know, once you've got it pretty good, it's pretty good. And it doesn't really get an awful lot better the more you spend on it. We're in the final moments of our show today already rather than those we've already talked about what sort of tides are you conscious of uh, moving through this area at the moment be they connected to the creative industries or others or more sort of social stuff there's this uh, save soho campaign of course going on yeah i think the save soho campaign has been incredible you know they've got a lot of celebrities involved and it's got a huge amount of attention and notice and i and i think it is another level of the challenges that we're all looking at you know people talk about soho as a village and, you know, I'd agreed to that to an extent, but it's a village that's got Warner Brothers, Spotify, Twitter, Industrial Light and Magic, King, you know, some extraordinary companies in it. So it's a village, but it's an amazing, you know, one-off village. You know, it's not, it's not a village in the sense of, you know, the butchers and the bakers. And I think there's, a, there's starting to be a real clash there amongst the residents, uh, you know, and, and Save Soho, you know, mo- mostly residents. And the companies that are you know working here this is a business district and there's some clashes there around it being a district that you can live in and a butcher's you can buy your meat from and you know and loaf of bread and get you know get sleep at night to a business district that's full of clubs and bars and and theatres that you know go on till four in the morning and it's it's really important that we all try and join those dots a bit and, and and make it work for everyone I think I've discerned the uh, the issues there through your very diplomatic uh, <laughs> answer there. We haven't got anybody representing Save Soho here, but what sort of specific concerns have, have been voiced? I think they're very concerned about inclusivity. I think, and I'd agree with this, one of the great things about Soho is there's, there's not really a fashion here that Soho is home for people who don't feel at home anywhere else. And it should always be that, and I think it always will. So Save Soho are concerned that as prices go up, you're starting to get more and more exclusive about the sorts of people that, that can access Soho. And I, I think that's a fair point. I don't fully... I think it's more complicated than that, but I absolutely would, would agree that that's a, a, a sensible point and a sensible thing to be campaigning about. It's interesting to know that the very centre of town here is, isn't immune from the problems that are besetting the capital as a whole. Our 
time here, unfortunately, is just about up. But I can't resist mentioning the good-looking magazine that's on the table here. By the way, my eyes have just about climatized to this red light. I can see, <laughs> I can see again for the first time. Um, and here it is in front of us, Soho Create. This is issue three of your quarterly magazine. I noticed that you're using the old-fashioned ink-on-paper approach here. Yeah, it's just so lovely, isn't it? And this, 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 our chair is Sir John Hegarty. And he was of the view that we simply had to have a magazine. We had to have a magazine that talked about all the amazing creativity that's going on in Soho. And so I rather naively said, yes, off we go, not knowing anything about magazine publishing at all. Um, But uh, we've got the lovely uh, Craig McLean, who's the editor, and True do the publishing for us. And it now goes out to 10,000 creative businesses all over Soho. It's in the coffee shops and and clubs around Soho. And, you know, I, I just love turning pages and reading about Soho um, so you know I, I, we're going we're to carry on doing it Good, well thanks for hosting us here at Let's Go today what's on the menu here by the way, what would you recommend? Snails Yeah I should have spotted that really um, <laughs> I, as somebody, resi- sorry this is, this is definitely, the listener cannot hear us at this point as somebody really resistant to the idea of snails, what have I got to do to get myself to eat a snail? Well I suppose the, the thing about snails is the snail themselves isn't anything it's the garlic and the sauce and dipping the bread in it and i think the snail just allows the excuse to have a sort of big bowl of garlic soup that you dip your bread into so i want the strongest possible seasoning going on there yeah exactly it's really really good it is really lovely it's very very strong garlic and the snails you know they don't think of them as snails they think of them as meat think of them as friends <laughs> no, that's not going to do it. Uh, Tom Harvey from Soho Great, thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Tom Harvey. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Gwetin Wolf. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.